Why am I here? Harkins said uneasily. You? The watcher laughed coldly. Why, you're the random factor in a 2,000-year-old chess game. <laughs> Today on Dumpster Book Club, we're talking about Next Stop the Stars by Robert Silverberg. And this book is kind of like a seven-layer bean dip. I got this book pretty recently at a big book sale, and I had decided I didn't need any more terrible sci-fi books because we have a stack that will last us for years. But this one, I thought, had a cover of a muscle-bound man punching a two-headed alligator, but really it's a muscle-bound man holding a large stick that a two-headed alligator is biting. He's not just a muscle-bound man. He's completely shirtless, totally ripped. And Full eight pack. <laughs> Full eight pack and wearing skin tight white pants. Yeah, bulge is front and center in this one. Every, every bulge. But also look at the 16 pack on the alligator. <laughs> I think there's something I really like about his stance. <laughs> where it looks like he just punched without putting any body weight behind it just reached out that arm it kind of looks like a punch from like a video game like gauntlet (laughs) or something what about these little things these little dingle dangles what are you pointing at the eyeballs yeah it is a two-headed alligator but each head only has one eyeball is that what's funny about it yeah and just that its eyeballs look like mushrooms oh yeah, I didn't realize they had a bunch of holes. Kind of gross. And this isn't actually an alligator because it has four arms and it's bipedal and has a sixteen pack and pecs, and its neck has a six pack. Did you mention it has four arms? I didn't mention it has four arms until now. We pretty much couldn't pass up this book based entirely on this cover and this amazing punch. Yeah. Though I did end up buying some other garbage (laughs) sci-fi at that book sale. But Robert Silverberg is a pretty famous author. In the intro, he said he's won a Hugo. Yeah, I think he's won a bunch of awards. He's worked on collaborations with Asimov. Just a beloved science fiction author, but not because of this book. This is all his earliest work. Also, from his quasi-official website, there's lists of his his works, and he's written over 80 novels and, f- like, 450 Man. short stories. And that's just the stuff that's published under his name. Uh, <laughs> the website also has his um, works that were under a pseudonym, and there are hundreds of those. Jeez. And most of them are sex books. Whoa. He has one pseudonym just for publishing uh, lesbian erotica. (laughs) (laughs) Like his work, Sin Girls, a shocking novel of lesbian love, tormented passions of woman for woman. Does it have the dates? Are these still early 60s, late 50s? Yeah, that's from 1960. That's pretty crazy. They must all be kind of exploitation. I doubt they're particularly deep, meaningful, romantic stories of women's struggles. (laughs) What do you think about lust bums? (laughs) Lust bums? Yeah. (laughs) Are they lustful homeless people or bums as in butts? Uh, unknown. Models by day, wontons by night. (laughs) (laughs) What does that even mean? What Um, could that possibly be about? It's pretty funny, this list of hundreds of books alphabetically, because there's lust bums, lust captive, lust cat, lust crew, lust cult, lust demon, and it just goes on and on. Those must look pretty impressive on a bookshelf, though. 
some of these are short stories. So I think they're parts of the like, lust collection. <laughs> <laughs> you can get a tome of lust. I think they were probably published in magazines and stuff like that, but it's quite a collection. In the introduction, he talks a lot about writing a story to get published in a magazine, and that seemed like a skill he developed where he would write stories specifically to be published in magazines and kind of knew the the points he needed to hit and the kind of title it needed. And it didn't seem like he was particularly proud or thought very much of things like that. I wonder if his pornographic novels fit into that too, where he just got very good at writing something that could be published in a magazine for a quick buck. Well, the introduction is written, it seems like, years later, and he was kind of reflecting on these stories a little bit, and seems like maybe he doesn't think so much of them at the time that he wrote this, but it does seem like he was pretty proud of these stories at the time that he wrote them. He kind of makes fun of himself a little bit for being so cocky when he was starting out. The introduction is also pretty funny because you can sum it up with Robert Silverberg saying, hey, I wrote these and they're not very good, but I got better. (laughs) You can read this if you want, but you should read my other things. Yeah. Okay, well, do you want to get into the first story? Slaves of the Star Giants. This is the layer of wet diarrhea on the seven layer bean dip. (laughs) Oh, no. This one is the prototypical golden age SF story. I This is what I imagine everything written in the 50s is like. It starts with your well-to-do businessman is transported to another world with no explanation and just jumps right into weird tales. Not only is he a, some kind of businessman, I got... The impression he was like a scientist because he was on his way to a lab in the middle of the middle of New York City. He's transported here. This is also the story that the cover is supposed to be based on, I think, although <laughs> it's pretty mostly for a scientist. <laughs> yeah. The artist took some some liberties with this one. Yeah, no explanation whatsoever. He was on his way to work and now he's in fantasy world. Well, it moves pretty fast. He wakes up in Fantasy World, and then there's a giant that picks him up. There are a few details about the size of the giants. It says that they're wearing jackets and shorts, but after crunching some numbers, confirm that they're wearing booty shorts. Um, Is that all those measurements you were making me do? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And then there's the robots also driving all over this planet. Yep, there's big cartoon 50s-style robots. With treads instead of legs. So he ends up clinging to a giant's leg, and giant picks him up and drops him off in a cluster of huts with some other humans. And then we meet the tribe. There's the chief. Jorn. Jorn, and he's a muscle man, tough guy. And there's... Some other people I don't remember. There's a lady that's annoying, and she's the witch. And there's the sex lady. There's the hot one. (laughs) Yeah. I think I I started off wanting to give Robert Silverberg some slack since these (laughs) books were some of his earlier works. But, yeah, Elsa, the, the witch lady the only single woman and would get first thing a description of how she's squat and weird and they all laugh imagining someone ever loving her (laughs) that was a pretty funny part of the book (laughs) imagine someone liking elsa and then the whole tribe just shakes their bellies (laughs) shake as they laugh at her it was pretty sad (laughs) um What's the hot one's name? Uh, oh, jeez. Okay, doesn't matter. Katha, Kathia. She's she's Jorn's lady. Then she tries to seduce our hero. But as a sort of weird revenge 
wife swapping sort of thing where Jorn knows it's going on and she knows it's going on, but Jorn can't let her sleep with another man because that would mess up the tribe dynamics. It's all just weird. Well, and then it gets even worse because, well, our hero Harkins turns her down like the gentleman that he is. (laughs) And so then she calls the whole tribe for help and accuses him of attacking her and right then jorn comes out and and kicks her because no one believes her anyway mm-hmm. then harkins gets kicked out of the tribe he he wanders around for a while until he meets the watcher he fights the alligator oh he fights the alligator first except it's hmm. what is it well it's a howling nightmare <laughs> It has six legs, like it's shown on the cover, and a pair of flattened, sharp-snouted heads, razor-like teeth, but it's covered in white fur, which is not the way it's drawn, so... Oh, and then he's saved by a robot that shows up and rips out the animal's throats. Yeah, the book goes from pretty cartoony to real violent pretty quickly a few times. It's fairly brutal. Okay, but yeah, then... Then the watcher. The watcher the watcher's the one who starts going on about chess games. Well, but he doesn't start it. There's a weird thing in this story where the main character, Harkins, is that his name, mm-hmm. will imagine something just in his head while he's walking. But then that thing turns out to be exactly true about the world. So he imagines he's in some sort of chess game and he's a pawn. And then the watcher's like, yep, you're in the chess game and you're a pawn. And it's so weird, and it just must be a way to keep this thing moving so quickly, because the story's only 50 pages and a ridiculous amount of things happen, and there's so much plot packed in here that I guess that was one of the ways to shorten it, is just Harkins imagines things about the world and then they become true. Something else that's weird about his chess analogy... So I'm not sure if Robert Silverberg knows how chess works. <laughs> well, that's everything where people say they're in a chess game. No a one three-dimensional actually... <laughs> chess game. No one actually knows how to play chess. They just imagine it's some sort of thinky game that generals do. Yeah, because the situation is so complex that every chess piece is playing a smaller chess game. <laughs> And this, it's nothing like chess at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so. the most basic, like, <laughs> Princess of Mars story. Um, actually, the whole scene with the Watcher and all this stupid chess stuff, it made me think that Robert Silverberg was drawing a lot of inspiration from Lewis Carroll, like Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, because he's just... Just a regular guy transported to this fantasy world, and he's just a pawn and moving around to, from one weird character to the next. Like, the Watcher is kind of... I think a good portion of this style of SF and Golden Age SF pulls from Lewis Carroll a lot. Except it's always a well-to-do white man who's in his middle ages that, you know, the people who would read these pulpa books could easily identify with instead of a, a little girl or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're all kind of like Robinson Crusoe, but with various fantasy elements added in. Or at least I I feel like they are. I actually haven't read that much. I've read <laughs> I've read Asimov and Bester, but I'm not a golden age expert. Well It's what they all kind of seem like though. So what does he learn from the Watcher? Man, it's hard to talk about the Watcher part because it's pretty funny. But it was also just so the worst part of the book, and I almost stopped here a few times. The Watcher's a mutant who's pretty much all-powerful. Yeah, and I I wrote down a few quotes from this dialogue. You should read them so that everyone else can suffer, too. You're the random factor. It would ruin the game to tell you too many answers. But I'll grant you this much information... You can go home if you get control of the robots. 
which is the whole the whole game. The whole chess game is he needs to get control of the robots. So the end. If we had read this earlier, this is obviously like what directly inspired Probability Man. <laughs> like the word random factor. That isn't it isn't random in the book at all. These horrible mutants or AIs that don't want to tell the answer and this idea that you're free from this horrible situation all you have to do is get control of something which just prove that you know what you're doing and then you can go free which is the whole way yeah. to get out of probability man as well probably man's way more 70s than this yeah you just gotta add about a hundred pages of garbage to the 50 pages <laughs> of garbage and then he doesn't he doesn't really know what to do so he decides he's going to go back to the tribe and try to get them to help him take control of the robots and what he ends up killing Jorn he and Jorn get in a fight because Jorn still doesn't want him in the tribe for the same reason as before and they have uh, a tussle a tumble there's a great headbutt a tilly and Harkins accidentally pushes him onto a spiky tree, and he gets impaled. Yeah, and it was almost like, oh, it was just an accident. I wasn't trying to kill him. But then Kathya shows up. It said that Harkins cruelly shows her Jorn's body. <laughs> and, well, she attacks him, and then, oh, jeez. Oh, never mind. Well, the fight is supposed to be, I think, one of those sex fights you see in TV shows all the time where two characters are fighting, but they're getting all hot and bothered while they're fighting. And then it turns into smooching. And I really hate that. But this was so much worse because she's like crying over the death of her lover and then He's, like, tormenting her with it, and she's trying to stab him. And then instead of it culminating into a passionate moment, he just says, no, okay, we're going to be lovers now. And she says, okay. And then they kiss. Did they even kiss? Oh, my God. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah. They formed a truce, and then it said they immediately kiss and giggle. (laughs) 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 I wrote that down. I almost forgot. Okay, now that Harkins killed Jorn, he's the new leader. They go to the tunnels, to the tunnel people. Yeah. Do you want to skip the whole war thing? Oh, it's not really necessary. Oh, that he learned from the Watcher? No, that he organizes the tribe to go fight the other tribe. You should explain that. Well, it's not really important, but before they go to the tunnels, he organizes. Oh, well, that's the goal. Like, they're going to the tunnels. and The get- tunnels is where you, he can supposedly get control of the robots. And the tunnels are inside of another tribe's village. And he decides to organize his tribe to start a war with the other tribe. And he uses the help of Elsa the Dump Witch <laughs> to set up a plan or something. And then they go over there. They have the fight, which is way more brutal than I it should have been. And Harkins even joins in just having a great time, just killing people with machetes and sticks and stuff. <laughs> yep. And then he and um, hot lady. Katya. I'll probably never remember her name. Sneak off from the fight to go into the tunnels. So this whole war seemed pretty unnecessary if all he had to do was sneak into the tunnels. Yeah, he could have just snuck into the tunnels. And not killed all those people that he killed. (laughs) And in the tunnels are more mutants, and they talk about their weird chess game some more, but then there's a moment where he supposedly tricks one of them into not caring. It's played off as if it's a riddle or something, but he he just says, you don't care about this, and then the mutant says... You're right. Yeah, I'm I don't bored. actually care. And then lets him pass. Gets bored and leaves. But he didn't have any incentive to block him anyway. 
Nope. Which is the riddle. That was the riddle, Mimi. Oh. Oh. <laughs> and he gets to the mainframe computer. The brain. Because it turns out this is Earth, and everyone blew themselves up with nuclear bombs. As usual. And then, before humanity could rebuild, some star giants came to study humanity and won't let them reform into large groups, so they can't rebuild society, I guess. And this mainframe computer somehow brought Harkins from the past to... Um, to help get rid of the star giants. I thought the supercomputer was pretty funny because it describes all the big reels of tape that makes it up. Oh, yeah. And he, he, he hacks the computer to fix some sort of problem by, you know, changing reels and, and punching in some code, like physically punching it in. <laughs> yeah, he recomputed the activity tape. <laughs> uh, that's always pretty cute. It is pretty funny i think there's a moment where he he brings back his chess analogy harkins is a pawn of this robot and the robot is a pawn of the brain and the brain is the pawn of the dead people that built the computer um oh i thought it was more cyclical like the robot was a pawn of humanity but humanity was a pawn of the robots because the robots maybe not i just remember it's being Super dumb. I don't know. I'm not that good at chess. (laughs) He hacks all the tape and makes a robot stop. Stop the fighting. He makes all the humans come into this control room to watch as he controls the robots to methodically kill all the star giants. Yeah, it's pretty funny how the robots do it. They circle the star giant, and then each of them puts out a little spike, and they just slowly move in <laughs> until the giant <laughs> dies. And he just does this over and over again to kill all of them while they just sit there watching. The giants didn't even seem all that bad. They Supposedly they were bad because they stopped humanity from reform. They're keeping humanity at a... A village level. Yeah, anytime they start to form an army, they break people up so they can't kill everybody. Probably didn't warrant such cruel deaths, though. Harkins has the option to go home, but instead he decides to stay and rule this world. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Does he not have any family back in the past or any desires or goals? Just his electrics lab. Just having sex with this lady. While I was reading this, I kept noticing comparisons to the three prior books we've read. I already mentioned Probability Man, but kind of the story behind this was pretty similar to Tesseract, where he's kind of pulled out of his own timeline to be brought here to save this world. But then, yeah, then instead of having anyone or anything else to care about, he just wants to stay in rule. It's like... The bad guy from Tesseract got pulled to the future to save the world. Um, Well, Harkins definitely is not a hero of any kind, it seems like. No. Seems like a pretty bad guy. Well, just not a good guy, I guess. Yeah. As for comparisons to Hobgoblin, I don't know if you noticed, but I think I saw the words Cooley, Riley... And I, someone chewed their lip. I did, I did see those. <laughs> um, That's it. I don't, I don't really have any final thoughts on that one. It's just a story. <laughs> yep. All right. But I do have a lot of thoughts on the next one. The Songs of Summer. I really liked this story. But I think it might have been because it came after. Yeah, this one. <laughs> I was gonna say it's better than the first one. Is a pretty good trick where you think think you're just gonna read a bunch of garbage and then the next one's you know decent. Do you wanna you wanna start yeah. this one? It starts exactly the same way with uh, just another guy appearing in the middle of nowhere, far in the future. But this one, but this one is told. Each chapter is from the perspective of a different character, and the first chapter is from the perspective of one of these future people 
And I just liked these future people were pretty different, but they see at first they seem pretty similar. They seem like someone we could identify with. And he just wants to get to the singing, which is some yearly event that everyone gets together to sing, supposedly. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, it's the future, but it's kind of like the past. There's Everyone blew themselves up with nuclear bombs. Yep. Start over and form a very calm, peaceful, low-technology society. Yeah, everyone is spread apart and lives miles away from each other. But they come together for the singing. Um, And this Chester Dugan, Dungan? Chester Dugan. Gets dropped in the middle of it. And Chester Dugan is a slimy uh, business shark business person yeah he wants to use his 20th century business ideas to bring money entertainment sports business and machinery to this world he just sees a bunch of people living happily and feels he like he can introduce capitalism and exploit them and these people are just sort of they don't really understand difficulty or struggle so much so they just let him do whatever he wants and if he asks them to do something they do it because why not so yeah you already said how each chapter completely switches perspectives which i thought was a pretty cool way to switch back and forth between chester's chapters and then the people of the future um the third chapter was from the perspective of the protagonist's girlfriend and the whole chapter was less than a full page and I had to double check the page number to make sure I didn't skip over something. But no, she got like a paragraph and that was it for that character. Yeah. Um, but what's next? Well, Chester seems pretty successful in getting everyone to do his capitalism thing. He builds a little town and has everyone just doing stuff for him. And the people don't really understand all these things they're supposed to do. And he's... He's building, like, a harem for himself. Oh, yeah. And I thought that was pretty cool. Not that he was building a harem, but <laughs> the book tricks you. The story tricks you into applying our sensibilities to these people. The whole point of the thing is that this this man from the past, this businessman, comes to the future and sort of applies his ethos and ideals on these people to make them fit his stereotype. And the book uses this sort of, oh, he's taken this guy's girlfriend to trick the reader into also applying our modern sensibilities to it because they don't really care who sleeps with who that much. He talks about how he's kind of bummed because he wanted to sleep with her, but it's not that big a deal. But it's, it's written as if we should be upset about it. And I thought it was a pretty good trick to make us fall into the same trap that Chester Dugan is in. Yeah, like, Chester's always worried about this guy, like, planning to retaliate against him or something over this girlfriend, but doesn't really... Yeah, it's, it's not that big of a deal. But they are really concerned about getting back to their harvest, and that's when... Our protagonist, Kenan, decides he's had enough. It's time to go. Time to leave this town that they've been going along with. But as they're trying to leave, Chester confronts them and punches Kenan. Then everyone's really worried about their their one of their singers. Because singers aren't like regular people. They have delicate minds. Um, yeah, and then we get a chapter from Jubilians perspective and it's super broken up and messed up because of the because chester punched kenan and then we get a weird chapter where they decide they have to do something about chester and it's from the perspective of four people at like communicating at once and all of a sudden we realize these people aren't really human and they're pretty different and all their cares and wants are so different from humanity And they decide to lock Chester Dugan in his fantasy of creating the capitalist world he wants. Yeah, they all psychically link 
and form one psychic being. Yeah, it's it's more than just humans psychically linking, though. It's very clearly the way it is. It's something more. And that's that's the end of it. The end. I just really liked it because we, the reader, get tricked along with Chester into thinking that these people are, you know, just like us or similar, even though we have much more information. And then at the end, it comes as a big surprise. And also, I just really like the style, the way this one was written. It was pretty unique and pretty different from the rest of the stories in this book. Yeah, it's this is almost as if Robert Silverberg... This could be the first try of a good author. Yeah. I think it reminded me a little bit of Anathem, which is also like far future Earth, but our main character, the, but the main character in that like kind of lives in an isolated monastery. So it's like far future, but everything you're introduced to is like, seems like the past or pretty different from. Is that with the, the one with like the hamburger people? Yeah. The Hamburgs. <laughs> All right. You want to talk about the next one? Hopper. Yeah, the rest of them are the rest of them are pretty simple and don't really warrant much discussion. Hopper is a pretty uninteresting time travel story. So Hopper starts with our super antisocial hero. Is it Quillian? Quellen. Quellen. He's part of Crime Sec Class 13. This one has a good amount of, you know, world building. Still light on character building, but Silverberg spends some time explaining the surroundings and the future world that they live in, whereas the other two were pretty blank. Yeah. He um, describes, you know, the the oxygen filters that they turn on when they're inside because the air is so polluted and some other stuff. There's some world building Yep. Gets introduced. Again, Earth has been pretty much ruined, but <laughs> by cities and just city sprawl and everything's really compact. People live in like cubicles in buildings. The air's almost unbreathable. And he's a future cop. But Quellen was pretty whiny of a character. Just hates everybody. He's just, he's finally happy that he has his own space where he was like, because at class 12, before he was promoted, he had to share a room and his roommates are like always Skyping and it's really annoying. <laughs> um, yeah, it just seems he just wanted to be alone and this wasn't a, a world that allowed that. And so now that he can be, he has an illegal thing in his house that lets him go to a uh, a private escape in Africa. He's on a case now because someone's sending unemployed people into the past. Yeah, this is also a future where everyone is desperate for work and money. And it's been known that at some point in the late 20th century, people started coming back from the future and stealing our jobs. And now they have this weird conundrum are they supposed to stop these people from going back in time to get jobs? Or are they not supposed to because it already happened and it would mess up time? <laughs> um, Quellen tracks down the guy that's doing it. Well, he doesn't track him down. He sends his assistant who sends his assistant to go find him. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, they're interrogating him. And we don't find out anything about time travel or what's really going on but he blackmails quellen to revealing his secret africa hideaway so quellen decides why don't i go back in time too yeah seems perfect for him but he goes much farther back in time to yeah. to pre-city pre-industrial america yep the end the end do you want to add anything to this one? Um, I just want to uh, note his vision of the future and all its bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. How everyone has their person do 
no one actually does anything. They just move it down the line until there's the lowest person has to do whatever job. And then if they don't do it right, they get super mad. And everyone's really focused on the the levels that they are getting promoted to the next class mm-hmm. because it comes with different privileges. Not Not nearly as good as Songs of the Summer, but also not really a bad short story. It's kind of pointless, maybe. Yeah, I think this one did have kind of some interesting visions of the future and all that, but I think his characters are pretty weak. Yeah, it did read kind of like some of those Philip K. Dick short stories that have mm. less interesting characters, but Dick's stuff usually has a, a joke or a punchline or a point or something or some sort of commentary, and this one was pretty weak on that too yeah just um well that happened yeah uh anyway should we move to blaze of glory (laughs) (laughs) so it's a story about john murchison one of the greatest heroes of space (laughs) he didn't really do much this book was pretty horrifying (laughs) to me really because murchison is just he's tall bull-necked coarse featured hard swearing just a big tough guy with an anger management problem (laughs) can can i just find that quote and read it (laughs) It's, it's like one of the best things well i well i can't find it but at some point in his life, Mur- how do you say his fucking name? Murchison? At some point in his life, Murchison beat up a frogman. For no reason. <laughs> Just got angry at a frogman and beat him up. But this is a world where people are always looking for work trying to get on a crew of a ship. And everyone has skills. And Murchison is a really good navigator, but he's also kind of an asshole. So people like having on the ship because he's one of the best navigators, but they got to deal with this guy who will just say no if he doesn't believe in an order. And Yeah, he seemed like a complete liability. And I guess I was trying to think about... I guess you're just not used to working in an industry full of dicks who are really good at their job. <laughs> it's like a daily thing for me. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I guess I was trying to think about other, like, crews of of ships like this where, like, you're really depending on everybody for any mission to go successfully according to plan. And this is somebody who will just tell the captain, no, I don't feel like doing that right now and get into fights. But he's also the best. <sighs> he's the best. So and the story starts suggesting that he was set up to be killed because he was put on a mission to these super peaceful fragile aliens and if he's just a guy that will randomly beat up a frogman it must have been planned that he was sent on this mission That's all hinted at but there's absolutely no evidence in this story of that. No, and the little stuff you do get doesn't link to him being sent on the mission. It links to something later that happens where they get to this planet and deliver their goods and one of the aliens wanders into the navigation room and Murchison just bops him one right in the face. With like a wrench, right? <laughs> um... Okay, yeah, so everyone on the crew was horrified. (laughs) It was a diplomatic nightmare. Yeah. They decide instead of, let's not send him to the brig. Let's just give him the silent treatment and (laughs) isolate and humiliate this already unhinged psychopath. Mimi, I feel like you're not understanding the character. (laughs) He's a cool guy. He's cool. He's not a psychopath. He's tough and he's unpredictable, but he's also the best. Oh my goodness. Oh my God. (laughs) Um. And the narrator's supposed to be the not cool guy. 
because he's always thinking ahead and being kind of a wimp, walks in the room with his blaster first instead of, you know, his mitts. <laughs> instead of his wrench. Yeah. <laughs> then they they leave the planet. During warp, there's a problem. They're spinning out of control and they've got no visuals. They're, I don't think they're spinning out of control. They just don't have any visuals and there's no way they can land. All navigation is knocked out. Yeah. And and it's insinuated that somehow the aliens messed with their navigation. Either Merch, Murchison like, tried to stop them from doing it or they did it because of him punching that guy. But either way, Murchison's solution is he whips a lasso around the front of the ship and rides it like a cowboy, like Dr. Strangelove style, down through the atmosphere and gets burned up and saves everyone. (laughs) The end. Yeah, it still doesn't make sense how he was set up from the beginning, though. He was set up once they landed, but in in the book it's suggesting that him being sent on this mission in the first place was a setup. In the beginning, it's talking about him at the end of the book. Yeah, but in the beginning, it says specifically, it spends a lot of time describing him and his unhinged nature and how he would never choose to go on this mission. And the fact that he was chosen was kind of a setup, but that never comes up again and actually isn't... It doesn't seem to be related. Oh, I thought that was just that the computer picks people at random. The computer should not have picked this man for this mission. Well, I don't think the computer's supposed to pick people at random. Because I think people can try to get jobs. Oh. At the beginning, our, our mouse character believes that he pissed someone else off previously and gets got sent on this mission. But it just, anyway, it doesn't matter because it doesn't make sense and doesn't connect back. What I wanted to say about this story is how strikingly similar it is to one of my favorite sci-fi books, Nova. Oh. Uh, Murchison is just like the captain in Nova, where he's this big, sort of gruff, unhinged guy with a like driving passion, and the the narrator is just like I think he's called I think he's named Mouse or Rat or something uh-huh. in in the story, who's the main narrator of Nova, who's sort of a sneaky sly smaller person and he's like a really great navigator and they have their navigator rooms and stuff in their ships and the ships are kind of similar and the whole i don't know it it just seemed incredibly similar to me and everyone should go read nova because it's one of the best sci-fi books i've ever read in my life who's it by um samuel delaney it came it came much later and it's it's probably dated now but it's really good and i liked this story because it reminded me a lot of nova anyway i just wanted to yeah. shout out to nova one of my favorite books nova's from 1968 yeah it's later it's much later it's only like a few years later i thought these were written in like 57 and 58 Oh, you're right. I think it's the big one that was 64 or something. Oh, yeah. Slaves, Slaves of Star Giant yeah. is much later. Um, Which is frustrating because it would seem like he got way worse. <laughs> um, and the last story really doesn't need to be talked about at all. Warm Man. Ugh. I just read this earlier today and I've already pretty much forgotten it. <laughs> It kind of reminded me of like like a Lovecraft story. Oh, okay. I was getting kind of Ray Bradbury and even Stephen King vibes. Oh, yep, those two. Do you want to summarize this? Oh, uh, yeah. It's we really don't need to talk about it. Basically, a guy shows up in this cul-de-sac, and for some reason, everyone—it's not in the future or anything. Everyone feels like they can tell him all their problems and feel really comfortable around him. And they all, like, they use a bunch of words, like, oh, he's radiant, or he said something that was sizzling, or (laughs) I don't know. And he seems to be sated by this, and then he has to take a break for a few days from talking to people. No, they just decide, someone decides they don't want to invite him to anything anymore. Yeah, eventually they decide to shun him because 
Well, it's just weird if somebody knows all the bad things you've ever done, just hanging out at a party, you probably don't, like, it's a little weird, because you're not really friends, because he doesn't talk to you at all. It's just some guy that just, like, knows all your secrets. <laughs> and then there's, there's some, like, weird kid. There's a kid with a lot of problems, and eventually, this guy's desperate for someone to tell him their problems, and no one will, because they're all shunning him, and he finds this little kid who has a lot of problems, and this little kid just unloads all his problems. Psychically. Yeah, it turns out they're both empaths. And he's a receiver, and the child is a giver. and Sender. Yeah, but, but it's the it's Okay, the giver yeah, 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 yeah. Right. You know. <laughs> 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 um, and it's too much, and it kills him. And then it's sad because the kid will never have another... The kid has to go find another empath or something. He'll never have another friend again. <laughs> the end. Yeah, imagine that kid's life is like some some helpful adult. Tell me your problems, son. And then he's like, oh, someone was mean to me in school. And then the guy just dies. <laughs> <laughs> he was already quiet to begin with. <sighs> um, and that's it. That's it. It's like six pages or something. It's super short and there's no point to it. Maybe the idea of an empath was exciting in 1956. Sure. But it, it does... Um, I don't know if there's anything to really draw a direct comparison, but it does feel like a Stephen King story a little bit. or And it kind of has a Ray Bradbury vibe, too. Like the dead zone. <laughs> yeah. like the. Not even so much plot, just the way it, it's written and structured. It seems kind of like Stephen King. Boring. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't spend 30 pages just telling you every detail of the weather. <laughs> Classic Stephen King move. Uh, um, anyway, that's the that's the whole collection. Do you have any thoughts on the collection as a whole? No. Okay. Did you? I do, I do. <laughs> um, so, I think it's pretty interesting that the book is four stories from four of his earliest stories and then one much newer story and he says specifically in the introduction that the slaves of the star giant was written to be published in a magazine because he knew it could get sold and sell magazines and then it was put in this collection specifically because it could sell the collection none of the other stories had the strength to sell the book like slaves of the star giants and man that story is terrible um, and I thought it was interesting that in all of these stories, there's some sort of reference to businessmen or like slimy businessmen or in War man, there was the guy who is a businessman, but really wants to be a writer. It's in all f- all five stories. And in the first story, the businessman scientist guy is like the good guy and all the other ones. It's a bad guy or it's something bad. He's barely a good guy in the first one. <laughs> yeah, but you're supposed to read him as one. And I thought it was just interesting because I think Robert Silverberg does have a very... I think he sees it very negatively the way he would work to sell his stories for money as opposed to writing them as art. And it pervades all the stories. And I think the collection itself is just a, a commentary on his work trying to sell stories as opposed to just writing what he wants. Hmm. I can see that. I mean, I don't, I don't think it, maybe it wasn't as thought out as that for Robert, but I think at least Robert Silverberg is concerned about this a lot because it, it is in all of his stories. That was really my only thought about the thing. Other than that, I, I liked the songs of the summer quite a bit. The rest were kind of take it or leave it. Slaves of Star Giant was terrible, and I wish I hadn't read it. <laughs> um, would you read any other Robert Silverberg? Would you check out Sin Girls? <laughs> I'm not that into erotica. And I don't know. I'm so behind on all the other Golden Age stuff. I feel like I should probably finish up Asimov or keep working on Heinlein or something. But it was kind of interesting in each story we drew parallels to other stories i wonder if obviously silverberg is influential i wonder if 
he's even more influential than we imagine. After reading Slaves of the Star Giants, I imagine Brian and Ball read that story, was... <laughs> and just put it down, picked up his pen, and just banged out the first draft of Probability Man. But that may not be the case, but... I'm yeah. convinced. I, I don't think Delaney read Blaze of Gory because it's Nova's too, it's too much of a masterpiece and too like uniquely creative for its time. I don't know. I think maybe many sci-fi authors of the 60s and 70s probably read Silverberg. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, since we're already kind of talking about it, who do you think this book is for? Maybe this book is for the busy professional... <laughs> don't have time to read a whole story so who do you think this book is for um i don't know i don't i don't really think this book is for anyone i think if you were a fan of robert silverberg it's for fans of robert silverberg i i'd be convinced that robert silverberg has better books and better short stories than this based on what we've read <laughs> yeah, pick up one of the other 400 <laughs> stories he's written. I bet one or two of them are good. Um, so maybe if you've read a lot of Robert Silverberg, this one isn't bad, except for the first story. But I don't really, I don't think just a sci-fi fan would get much from it. Maybe this book is for the 50s businessman <laughs> who just needs a little bit of secret whimsy in his life. <laughs> Yeah, I I imagine, especially Slaves of the Star Giants being, uh, you know, in the racks of an airport or a bus stop or something, just picked up by the, the traveling business person. Well, I think that's it for Next Stop the Stars. If you want to join us in January, we are reading The Knot World by Thomas Burnett Swan. <laughs>